Blog Talk Radio. for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property circling and alerting 
those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. Let's continue with part two of our look at the 50s climb and descent by Robert Sterling. To Captain Eddie, it was rank injustice which naturally he blamed on bureaucracy. It was, in most respects, an injustice, but it's hard to tag bureaucracy as the sole culprit in freezing Eastern out of a route Rickenbacker himself had convinced and sought for 25 years. Robert Burkhart, in his fine history of the CAB, put much of the blame on the captain for the board's original decision that was nothing more than an illegal compromise. Unfortunately, he wrote, Captain Rickenbacker, with his usual flamboyant approach, overplayed his part. He literally stumped the South, building up civic support and community pressure so that the CAB would have no choice but to pick Eastern for its long-coveted route. He built up so much pressure, however, that the board reacted in a contrary way. That Rickenbacker should have been faulted for trying to har so hard seems unfair, and it is debatable whether his overzealousness was the real reason for the number done on Eastern. A more plausible explanation may be EVR's own attitude toward what he regarded as regulatory interference and ineptness, an attitude which is not entirely unjustified, although he shared one thing in common with his bitter rival, Baker. National's president was as outspoken as Rickenbacker when it came to unvarnished contempt for politicians. He once publicly called, called Congress a den of thieves, going beyond even the captain's abrasiveness. Yet it was National which benefited the most from the CAB's third and fourth decisions in the Marathon Southern Transcontinental case, and both were issues while Baker still owned National. More likely, Eastern was robbed because of a combination of adverse factors, Rickenbacker's unpopularity among government officials certainly being a major one. EAL also was handicapped by the regulatory climate of the 50s, which favored strengthening the smaller trunk carriers to make them more competitive with the so-called Big Four, United, American, TWA, and Eastern. This trend was logical and perhaps reasonable, but affected Eastern more adversely than it did the other three giants because so many of the CAB's route awards went to two of its most bitter competitors, 
Delta, and National. There are more roads to route expansion than the regulatory path, of course, and Captain Eddy chose the most obvious merger. Where he had once been adamantly opposed to this course, he now decided that the mushrooming competition of the 50s required a fresh look. And it was to the north that he gazed in the direction of a faltering small carrier possessing something he wanted badly, access into Canada. The airline was colonial, and Rickenbacker wasn't the only one casting covetous eyes. The hard-pressed Montreal-based company was also on George Baker's shopping list, and figuratively speaking, these two paragons of mutual animosity collided in the market aisle. The Rickenbacker-Baker feud was only slightly less intense than the one which made the Hatfields and McCoys famous. To Captain Eddie, Baker was a crook, a liar, and charlatan. He once told a reporter that National's original slogan, Route of the Buccaneers, merely reflected the re reputation of the damn pirate who ran it. Baker, in turn, considered the captain a greedy, unprincipled despot whose definition of free enterprise was anything that benefited Eastern. There was a modicum of proof to confirm both appraisals, sums up their unfettered hatred, and frequently underhanded strategy. National's interest in acquiring Colonial first surfaced in 1951 after Baker had been rebuffed in merger talks with both Northwest and Northeast. National and Colonial actually reached a tentative merger agreement which called for the absorption of the smaller carrier in return for over 450,000 shares of national stock to be distributed among Colonial stockholders or seven shares of national stock in exchange for eight shares of Colonial stock. The merger seemed cut and dried, but Baker quickly found out that Rickenbacker never could be un underestimated. Shortly after Colonial's board of directors approved the merger proposal, leaving only the stockholders green light for final consummation, Eastern entered the bidding through a back door. Very quietly, a number of Colonial's largest stockholders had sold their shares to some of Eastern's most influential stockholders. To be more specific, subsequent hearings on the proposed EAL Colonial merger disclosed that two of Eastern's directors had persons and firms in the immediate orbit of Eastern's influence, had acquired 21%, or about 110,000 shares of Colonial's capital stock, sufficient to defeat a merger with National. Having neatly knifed Baker, Rickenbacker then made his own bid for Colonial, an exceptionally attractive offer amounting to almost 345% over the beleaguered airline's book value, which at the time would have been the highest proportional price ever paid by one airline assuming control of another. It was too good an offer for Colonial's aggressive president, Branch T. Dykes, to resist. On March 23, 1952, Dykes recommended to his shareholders that they accept. He pointed out that despite heavy government subsidies, Colonial had accumulated a $1.5 million deficit and he saw no hope for the future because of portly integrated route structure subject to extreme seasonal differences. He described Eastern as the soundest of all domestic carriers, one which had never operated in the red and year after year has spurned all offers of government subsidy. Such fulsome praise and telling arguments, however, didn't dissuade either the CAB from holding hearings or the, on the merger or Baker from trying his damnedest to block it. Throughout EAL, there was considerable concern that the merger might be rejected. Brad Williams, in his History of National, 
writes that everyone got into the act, including the White House and Department of Justice, because Baker raised so much hell. It was a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black, inasmuch a few years earlier Baker had tried to take over Caribbean Atlantic Airways, otherwise known as Carib Air, only to be shot down by the CAB, which found that National actually had started operating the other carrier without first getting approval. It was the same charge Baker was now hurling at Rickenbacker. Prior control was the chief issue at the hearings that opened in October 1952. National introduced evidence that went beyond allegations of purchases of colonial stock by people in the immediate orbit of Eastern's influence. He claimed that when National learned EAL had made several changes in the bidding form and requested the same privilege, it was turned down by Colonial Vice President in a telephone call. It was now obvious from the record that National's request was not even re relayed to the Colonial President or its Board of Directors, the National Brief stated, whereas Eastern and Colonial had a meeting among Rickenbacker and several others about the Eastern changes in bidding forms requested earlier. Furthermore, the meeting was held in the offices of Rickenbacker and on Eastern property, and the changes in the bidding form requested by Eastern were made and reported in the corporate minutes of Colonial Airlines. The CAB's Bureau of Public Affairs Council, urging the board to reject the merger, called EAL's tactics a brazen and willful demonstration of the employment of stock control power to compel a corporation management to accept the offer of a designated bidder, in this case Eastern, by pointedly demanding a meeting for the sole purpose of considering only that one offer. Its coercive effort upon the badgered and bewildered colonial management, still reeling from the stockholder rejection of the recommendation of approval of a merger with National, needs no amplification. The CAB, however, initially approved the merger. It conceded that Eastern had not satisfactorily reputed the prior control charges, but found that a merger would save the taxpayer some $850,000 a year in subsidy payments. And the, this, plus other advantages of the Eastern Colonial merger, were considerations for approval of such weight to overbalance the public interest in preserving the integrity of Section 408, the provision in the Civil Aeronautics Act for bidding prior control. The merger still needed White House approval because Colonial operated a single international route to Bermuda from New York and Washington. President Eisenhower jolted Eastern by rejecting the board's decision and sent the case back to the CAB. This time the board reversed itself, found that Eastern had violated Section 408, and recommended that a national merger be approved. Rickenbacker's dejection was matched by Baker's elation. The latter told associates, We've got Bermuda and Canada in the bag. Williams says what Baker didn't grasp was the resentment he incurred among colonial stockholders, management, and directors of sufficient proportions to force another round of CAB hearings. By the end of 1954, the ace in the hole Rickenbacker was holding amounted to a simple mathematical ma matter. Eastern was still willing to pay more than $9.6 million for Colonial's assets against National's bid of $2.5 million. Nor was Captain Eddie ignorant of the, that Section 408 mud Baker had so skillfully tossed. While Baker continued to argue that Eastern already controlled Colonial illegally and should be ousted from the proceedings completely, 
The EAL stockholders who had bought into Colonial quietly sold their shares and removed prior control as the chief roadblock. This time it made little difference who owned which shares. Colonial shareholders, directors, and management wanted Eastern and not National, and there wasn't anything Baker could do about it. National was not in the financial position to better EAL's offer, which also provided for the exchange of one share of Eastern stock for two shares of Colonial. This time, the CAB, on January 11, 1956, approved the merger, and two weeks later, President Eisenhower did likewise. The climax of the four-year fight added nearly 3,000 route miles, 19 new cities, and two countries to Eastern system. Captain Eddy called the merger a joining of hands, not dollars, and assured all Colonial employees would have full-time security and all classifications, along with the same employee benefits, Eastern was giving its own personnel. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. On this broadcast, we continue to tell the story of Eastern Airlines and of the people of Eastern Airlines. This story might evoke uh, some not-too-pleasant memories for some of you. The date was March the 17th, 1970. It concerned Eastern Shuttle Flight 1320 from New York to Boston. The story is from The Wings of Man. Uh, it was written by Lou Brogna. And the story is the 1970 Eastern Airlines hijacking, subtitled, Death on the Eastern Shuttle. Tuesday, final shift before my days off. I worked second shift as a stock clerk, 3 to 11. It was St. Patrick's Day, March the 17th. It was a bit warm for a spring day in Boston. I remember the hangar doors being open and an evening breeze was flowing through the building. We could see across the terminal several hundred yards away. The day had begun as any other day. We had several aircraft in for maintenance, and of course the shuttle was always keeping our crews occupied. In the course of our work, we would monitor incoming flights as we were usually awaiting equipment or parts sent from other locations. As stock clerks, we were assigned to meet the flights to ret retrieve these shipments and deliver them to the maintenance crews or stock room. Around 8 p.m., we were informed by Eastern's flight control that a Douglas DC-931 shuttle service from New York to Boston had been hijacked. All we knew is that the flight had entered Boston airspace and was attempting to land at Loken. Soon everyone working in both the hangar and the terminal buildings was aware of the situation. The Eastern flight controllers had some idea of what was happening because, I was later told, 35-year-old Captain Robert Wilbur, Jr., a former U.S. Air Force pilot had been able to set his mic for monitoring on the ground. We knew before the airplane landed that there had been a scuffle in the cockpit, and both the pilot and co-pilot had been shot. How seriously, we did not know. Personnel from the hangar and the terminal turned their attention toward the evening sky, and everyone watched the DC-9 on approach. We knew by now that all other flights had been diverted or held on the ground. 
As we watched the airplane descend rather rapidly, it became obvious that the pilot was not on the proper glide slope, and we all feared the DC-9 would land short of the runway. I remember the stillness. No one said a word. As the saying goes, the silence was deafening. Although severely wounded, the captain brought the airplane in, as one passenger later said, very smoothly. We watched as the DC-9 taxied to the terminal at a speed none of us had ever witnessed before. Danny, one of the ramp service personnel, attempted to guide him into the designated spot, but dropped the wands and ran to the baggage area. He later told me that knowing both pilots had been shot, he wasn't sure if the airplane was going to crash into the terminal. Obviously, neither were the people in the building because they scrambled away from the windows. When the brakes were applied, it appeared that the nose of the DC-9 actually hit the ground because of its speed. The airplane stopped short of the jetway, and the forward door opened, and the air, air stairs were lowered. The FBI, state, and local police were on hand and boarded immediately. Out stepped Captain Wilbur. We could see blood all over his arms and uniform. Refusing assistance, he directed the emergency personnel to help his co-pilot. He then walked down a few steps, sat down, and began to look at his wrist. We could all tell that he was physically and emotionally drained. Most of the passengers subsequently revealed they did not know what had transpired in the cockpit until approaching the airport. Once the airplane came to a halt, not one passenger attempted to leave their seat and watched in horror as the captain emerged from the cockpit. Captain Wilbur was below the steps and being attended by emergency personnel when we witnessed the police escorting someone down the air stairs. The man appeared to be covered in blood and seemed groggy but as the police attempted to handcuff him, he fought them off and tried to run. It took the effort of several officers to subdue him. They finally had to bang his head against the stanchion of the jetway and throw him over a state police cruiser before he was finally restrained. Soon after, the body of 31-year-old co-pilot James E. Hartley, Jr. was brought out and put into the ambulance. We learned later that he had died in the cockpit. The story of Shuttle Flight 1320 became a national sensation because this was the first death caused by sky piracy in U.S. airspace. Hijacker John DeVivo, a 27-year-old from West New York, New Jersey, had boarded Eastern 1320 at Newark with a 38 caliber revolver. At that time, shuttle cabin crews collected fares during the flight. During the collection, DeVivo told senior stewardess Christine Peterson he had no money to pay the $15.75 fare, pointed the gun at her, and demanded to be taken to the cockpit. Miss Peterson took him to the door of the flight deck and, using the cabin telephone, told the cabin a man wanted to see him. I'm busy, replied Wilbur. You don't understand. He has a gun, Peterson replied. Captain Wilbur told the stewardess to let DeVivo in and return to the cabin and advise the other 65 passengers that all was fine. Attempting suicide at age 16, DeVivo had shot himself in the head and the bullet remained in his skull, resulting in more erratic behavior. He told Captain Wilbur to fly east out over the ocean until the airplane ran out of fuel. The captain advised DeVivo that they would soon crash into the Atlantic if they did not return to Boston to refuel, and DeVivo appeared to agree with this action. Captain Wilbur said that when he banked the aircraft for the turn, DeVivo appeared surprised and began firing his weapon. First Officer Hartley was shot in the chest and collapsed. Captain Wilbur was hit in the arms. Then Hartley recovered, 
grabbed the pistol and shot DeVivo three times in the arms and abdomen before relapsing into unconsciousness. DeVivo then struggled with Captain Wilbur in an attempt to crash the airplane, but Wilbur hit the hijacker over the head with a gun that had fallen onto the center console. Bleeding profusely, Captain Wilbur was able to land safely. Without mentioning his own injuries, he told the tower his co-pilot had been shot and needed an ambulance. This story is remarkable in many aspects, not least the skill of the newly promoted Captain Wilbur and the heroism of both pilots. They personify the professionalism displayed by this nation's pilots as well as the willingness to give their lives in the protection of their passengers. People who work for the airlines are a special breed and take their profession very seriously. They are a family and a hurt to one becomes a hurt to all. In 1970, the personnel who worked at Logan for Eastern were a close-knit bunch. We spent time with each other at parties, picnics, and family gatherings. We rode together to work. We helped each other during times of crisis. If there was a snowstorm and the employee parking lot was snowed in, we all pitched in to make sure everyone was able to leave after work and that the incoming shift had clear spaces in which to park. It did not matter if you were a contract or a non-contract employee, a pilot or a flight attendant, and usually we gathered at the same watering holes after work. With the hijacking of Eastern 1320, the death of James Hartley, and the serious injuries to Robert Wilbur, the whole nation was shocked, saddened, and angered. However, nowhere was the shock, anger, and sadness of this incident felt more intensely and taken more personally than by the Eastern family at Logan. After the officials were through examining the aircraft and before the cleaners began their work, many of us were able to view the bloody scene of the carnage in the cockpit. It was a truly a horror and made all of us aware just how incredible it, it was for Captain Wilbur to have brought his airplane and 65 passengers and three cabin crew to safety. As for John DeVivo, he was charged with murder, sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for mental evaluation, and then on to Suffolk County Jail at Charles Street. While awaiting trial on October the 31st, 1970, he hung himself in his cell. One other important factor in this saga, as I recall, is that this horrific incident began the era of metal detectors appearing at airports. And I'd like to finish this story up and read you what was inscribed on a plaque uh, for a training center that was named for this heroic first officer. The plaque reads, James E. Hartley Training Center, to the memory of First Officer James E. Hartley, who died defending his passengers, fellow crew members, and his aircraft on March 17, 1970. This building and its purposes are dedicated to the example of Captain Robert M. Wilbur, who, despite his own serious wounds, landed the aircraft safely and skillfully. The people of Eastern Airlines dedicate themselves. Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston, and a unique new dining service is worth writing home about. 
Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster newberg, filet mignon with bordelaise sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. When an aircraft is on the ground, being readied for its next departure, there are a lot of things going on. You may see a fueler adding fuel. You may see a pilot walking around his aircraft. Uh, you may, be, may see the caterers loading food and beverage for the next flight. Did you ever see someone standing around with a clip, clipboard making notes uh, as how the baggage was being loaded or how much time it was taking to do a task? Well, this next story is by Al Sezadek, and it's called The Best Engineering Job Ever, Industrial Engineering at Eastern Airlines. In January 1972, I was a graduate industrial engineer, and two months prior, I had finished three years in the U.S. Army. Here I was in Miami being hired as a junior engineer in the Customer Services Division of Eastern Airlines. What a fabulous opportunity. Industrial engineering is an interesting branch of the engineering sciences that has three basic parts, work measurement and methods, including time study and efficiency improvement, human factors involving designing workplaces and work to fit the body's capabilities, and operations research, the mathematical modeling of solutions. Customer service was going to give me the opportunity to exercise my skills in all three areas. Other than flying or maintaining aircraft, Customer services had responsibilities in every area that a customer might come in contact with. Aircraft loading, cargo handling, aircraft cleaning and fueling, baggage checking, baggage conveyor systems, ground equipment and building maintenance, airport ticket counters, city ticket officers, offices, passenger processing, dining services, reservations, quality control, and manpower planning and forecasting. Industrial engineered had the responsibility to develop procedures to allow the airlines to economically staff all of these areas and functions to fit the aircraft schedules and passenger volumes that changed during the year at all the cities served by the airline. When I joined, we were in the process of developing computer models to accomplish this. The department varied in numbers from 4 to 17 members over my 20 years. It saw more than 90 engineers flow through the department many of them moving eventually into manager, director, and vice president positions with the company. In my whole life was absolutely the best job I ever had. Simply put, our job was to watch people work. We watched them to measure them. We watched them to simplify the work to be done. We watched them to ensure we had enough people to accomplish quality goals. Our measurements of workload at various jobs and locations ensured equitable distribution of resources among all functions and cities to make Eastern a reliable and quality airline. Our department, in addition to these activities, had measured goals to achieve annual savings and cost avoidance of more than 10 times the cost of operating the department. We always met or exceeded these goals. So far it sounds pretty dull, huh? Well, we always had fun in doing what we did. We traveled to the places Eastern flew, interacted with all the great people of Eastern that worked in these areas, had access to the latest mainframe computers and PC technologies, and had the opportunity to see the results of our labors while reacting to the incredible time pressures of airline work.
As a department, we developed camaraderie and friendships that lasted long after Eastern stopped flying. Every Eastern employee has countless stories of the people and the crazy incidents of airline life. For 20 years, I worked my way up from junior engineer to project engineer to manager of industrial engineering, then director of industrial engineering and manpower planning. I am not unique, and every Eastern employee could fill volumes with their stories. Here are three of mine. The first one is it couldn't happen today. I was working as a junior industrial engineer in the late 1970s and had spent a week doing a study of the cargo operations at the old Atlanta airport. I was tired and eager to catch a flight back to Miami late on Friday afternoon. My flight was one of the concourses with no jetways. I got the last space available seat and was waiting for the aircraft to push back when the agent came on board to tell me he had another revenue passenger and would I mind giving up my seat. Of course, I gave up the seat. The agent thanked me and told me to pick up my bag and follow him. We raced across the tarmac to the next concourse where another aircraft routing Atlanta, Fort Lauderdale, Miami was beginning to taxi out. The agent flagged down the aircraft, the pilot opened his window, and the agent asked if he could board one more passenger. The pilot dropped the stairs and I got on and made it home. In these days of larger aircraft, jetways, and security restrictions, this could never happen again. His second story, first with automatic, automated baggage sorting. Eastern's Concourse B in Miami had the nation's first automated baggage sorting system. It did not use the UPC barcodes that we see today. Instead, it utilized bullseye labels developed by the Three Young Corporation. As with all new systems, there were many bugs to be worked out. Hal Hudy, the manager Miami station engineer, and I worked to solve these problems. The label printer itself was in a weather-protected cabinet and cost about $9,000, which at that time was about equal to the cost of a Cadillac. It had an intricate way of feeding labels to the printhead using a square wheel that slid over pre-cut labels. Despite the cost of the machine, we could not adjust the tension properly to make the labels feed right. Our solution was to stretch a string of rubber bands to create the proper tension until 3M engineers could redesign it. Two days before the system was to go live, we were informed that 3M was not going to be able to provide enough printers to run the sidewalk bag checking operation as well as the ticket counter positions. In our panic to find a solution, we created 10 pre-printed labels and a sheet assigning flights to each of 10 conveyor spurs. An all-night session punching holes in labels and pounding nails and plywood boards to hold them allowed the station to survive the first two weeks of operation of the automotive system. And the, his third story, the CF air freight operation and the moonlight special. Eastern signed a contract with CF air freight to use an A300 Whisperliner fleet to run a cargo connecting operation to Houston Intercontinental during the midnight hours. Ground time was about two to three hours and all the belly space was sold to CF. There were intact containers plus containers that had to be broken down, sorted, and built up again. The first thing that had to be developed was a temporary sort belt system that could set up and be used for this operation, then taken down to allow Houston to use the warehouse for normal activities during the day. This was done with a combination of portable belts and belt loaders. To utilize the seats to carry passengers, the Moonlight Special Operation was born. 
This featured space available, no free check baggage, no mail service, low-cost travel. As check baggage was discouraged, the amount of carry-on bags skyrocketed. To make the weight and balance legal, we had to quickly do statistical surveys to establish a way to accurately measure the average carry-on weight per passenger. Finally, we had to figure out how to properly staff all the functions involved, both on the ramp, sorting the cargo, and in the passenger terminal. These operations were so successful that when Texas Air came into the picture, the operation was hurting Continental, so it was forced out of Houston to Chicago where it could not operate as well. I believe my work on these projects was instrumental in my being promoted to manager that year. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Why don't we go back and take a look at one of Eastern's most uh, famous assets. It was the Eastern Airlines Air Shuttle. I'm going to read an article from Wikipedia about the shuttle and also a couple of vignettes from the book From the Captain to the Colonel by Robert J. Serling. Eastern Airlines Shuttle, or Eastern Air Shuttle, was a brand name of Eastern's Air Shuttle that began on April 30, 1961. The shuttle originally flew between New York City, Boston, Washington, and Newark. The shuttle became part of the fabric of business and government travel in the Northeast Corridor. No reservations were needed. Passengers showed up at the terminal, and if a plane was full, another was rolled out. The shuttle slogan was, Imagine Life Without Us. It was sold in 1988, and in its present incarnation is known as the American Airlines Shuttle. And just a side note on that, Americans uh, really came up with the original idea for the shuttle back in the uh, 1940s under C.R. Smith. America never launched the shuttle at that time because they couldn't figure out how to do it and make money. But on April 30, 1961, Eastern inaugurated the Eastern Airlines shuttle, initially 95 or 96 seat Lockheed 1049 Super Constellations left New York LaGuardia every two hours from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. to Washington National and to Boston. On August 1st, LaGuardia Boston became hourly, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. out of each city. LaGuardia DCA followed in the next month or two. Fare in May of 1961 was $10.95 to Boston, $12.75 to Washington. Rail coach to Washington was $9.68. Passengers could pay in cash after boarding, so the fare soon dropped a few cents to $12 and $14, including the 10% federal tax. Reservations were not needed, seat assignments were not given, and initially no check-in was required and no boarding passes were issued. But Eastern guaranteed everyone a seat. If the flight filled up, another aircraft was ready to go. On Sunday after Thanksgiving 1961, the, two, the 10 p.m. flights between LaGuardia and Boston carried 623 passengers on seven aircraft. The Sunday following Thanksgiving was always the shuttle's busiest day. 
On 1 December 1968, the shuttle carried 21,760 passengers on 94 first section flights and 197 extra sections. The shuttle peaked in 1963 when weekdays saw hourly super constellations 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. each way, LaGuardia Boston and LaGuardia D.C., Allery DC-7Bs, 730 to 1030 each way, Newark to Boston, Super Constellations every two hours, 730 to 930 each way, Newark to DCA, and five flights each way, DCA to Boston. In 1966, the New York Times reported that the shuttle was carrying 86% of the Washington, New York area air traffic and 76% of the traffic to Boston. It said the shuttle lost several million dollars a year until about two years ago. Electris took over the first sections, LaGuardia Boston and LaGuardia DCA, in September-October 1965. The last Constellation shuttle flights were in 1968. Electras became backups to 727s in 1966, then to DC-9s in 1967. In later years, New York Air, a subsidiary of Frank Lorenzo's Texas Air Corp, started a competing shuttle service in 1980s with DC-9s. Lorenzo acquired Eastern in 1986 and had to sell New York's air shuttle service to Pan Am World Airways to get Department of Justice antitrust clearance. By 1986, the two shuttles were in intense competition. Pan Am had a market share of around 45%, and touted its full-service product in comparison to Eastern's no-frills products. In 1987, Lorenzo unsuccessfully tried to sell the Eastern shuttle to his own Texas Air, apparently for the purpose of transferring cash out of Eastern in the form of advisory fees. Eastern's labor unions challenged the sale in federal court and won a judgment requiring union bargaining in connection with the sale. By then, the shuttle was one of the few profitable operations under the Eastern brand. In October 1988, the shuttle's ground rights and 17 aircraft were sold to Donald Trump to form the Trump shuttle with the first flight in June 1989. Just a year later, the company was in financial default and surrendered to become Shuttle Inc., which U.S. Air entered into an agreement to operate in 1992, then bought in 1997. The shuttle service began as U.S. Air Shuttle, which is presently known as the American Airlines Shuttle. Pan Am's competing shuttle service was bought by Delta in 1991 and became the Delta Shuttle. And from the book, in a pressure cooker that has generated as many as 72 extra sections per day, the Air Shuttle's safety record has been impressive. In the first 19 years of its existence, with nearly 60 million passengers flown, there has been only one fatal accident, a mid-air collision between a TWA-707 and an Eastern Constellation operation as a Newark-Boston Newark shuttle, flight December the 5th, 1965. The Eastern captain, Charles White, crash-landed the Connie on a hillside after the impact severed his controls, a miraculous job of airmanship in which White maneuvered solely with his throttles. A single passenger died, along with White himself, who re-entered the burning plane in a vain effort to save him. We've also told that story of Captain White and that mid-air collision on this uh, Eastern radio program. Equally impressive is the shuttle's own time performance. 
among the best in the industry, consistently running between 92 and 94 percent. In a corridor's combat zone, such on-time performance is close to a miracle. It is achieved by the simple process of dispatching first sections as soon as they are filled, usually 20 minutes ahead of scheduled departure. The second section usually leaves the gate right on schedule, and the policy is dispatch the final section no later than 20 minutes after scheduled departure. The shuttle also rates high grades in baggage handling, a constant industry headache but almost foolproof in the air shuttle operation. When it first started, there was a long and loud debate over where to put the usual claim checks on luggage. McIntyre, the eastern president at the time, argued against it, insisting that passengers could simply leave their bags in a special pre-boarding area and claim it in a similar area at destination. It's still done that way, and the air shuttle has the fewest complaints and the lowest lost bag percentage in the industry. One of the few bags reported lost belonged to an eastern vice president who was raising hell until someone discovered he had left it in the men's room at National Airport. Naturally, the shuttle is plagued by the usual delays applicable to any carrier, but on one occasion fell victim to Eastern's admirable practice of dispatching each flight as soon as it's loaded, a procedure which comes close to being perpetual motion. It was a busy Friday afternoon, and the shuttle boardings at LaGuardia that day looked like an assembly line. Pull up, full up, pull, fill up, and pull out. One extra section was completely full. The stewardesses had welcomed everyone aboard. The captain PA's, cabin PA safety message had been delivered, and the plane just sat there. After ten minutes of waiting, the senior flight attendant went up to the cockpit to inquire about the delay. She got the answer quickly. Nobody was in the cockpit. They'd run out of standby crews. Then there's the ultimate air shuttle story, generated by the debacle of the 1968 air traffic controller slowdown that almost brought the U.S. air transportation system to a halt. At the height of the snarled mess, a passenger boarded a shuttle flight in Washington shortly before 5 p.m., landed in New York less than 50 minutes later, and was so impressed that he lagged behind to praise the duplaning pilot. Captain, he said pleasantly, I just want to compliment you and Eastern. I was expecting all kinds of inconvenience. I figured the 5 o'clock shuttle would be lucky to land at Guardia by 8. Yet here I am, and it's only a few minutes after 6. Thanks, the captain said dryly, but you were on the 2 o'clock shuttle. On November 1, 1977, Eastern retired the last of its electress probably the shuttle's best all-around airplane, and went all-jet with the DC-9 as the primary aircraft and Boeing 727-100s as backup. On more than one occasion, an Electra beat a DC-9 to destination by as much as 30 minutes, even though it was operating as an extra section. The prop jet's ability to operate more efficiently at lower altitudes made the difference, but the Electra's maintenance cost had soared to the point its versatility was no longer a major factor. It was costing Eastern $8,000 to replace a propeller that only cost $2,700 when the plane was brand new. Prop overhaul alone for Eastern's last three Electras required a 10-man shop crew in Miami, and some replacement parts were being built to order for an aircraft that was averaging only two hours daily utilization. Let's continue our story with the early days of Pitcairn Aviation, the forerunner of Eastern Airlines. This is from the book, From the Captain to the Colonel, by Robert J. Serling.
For two weeks, Pitcairn operated routinely until a spell of unpredictable, horrendous spring weather suddenly turned routine into tragedy. It was the night of May 16th, and pilot after pilot was reporting everything from fog to angry thunderstorms all along the East Coast. Johnny Keitel landed at Richmond and was informed that Treat had been forced down by a violent storm near Baltimore. Trying to squeeze his mail wing into an emergency landing strip, he broke a propeller. Well, Cattle lied cheerfully, somebody's go up there and get Burns mail. I'll go, but I don't particularly want to. I've seen enough thunderstorms for one day. The station manager told him other arrangements already had been made. Ed Morrissey, the relief pilot stationed at Richmond, would ferry in an empty mail ring north. Ed, you're lucky, Cuddle laughed. I think I've used up all the bad weather. Morrissey just smiled. This would be his first air, air mail run, and it also happened to be his 33rd birthday. He took off at 1.23 a.m. and disappeared into a thick patch of fog. A few minutes later, Keitel and the others heard his engine. He apparently was coming back to Bird Field, but Keitel was frowning. His airman's instinct told him something was wrong. There was a saying among pilots that even an engine can sound lost. The roar increased as if Morrissey were diving, then changed pitch. Keitel had just blurted, He's in trouble! When they heard an explosion and then saw a bright orange ball of fire reflected eerily through the opaque fog. When they dug Ed Morrissey's body from the wreckage, they found his watch had stopped at 1.44. His first mail flight had lasted only 21 minutes. Disorientation of the pilot resulted in a loss of control, the investigator said. For years, Howard Wentz couldn't forget the sight of Morrissey's parachute in a corner of the hangar stained with blood. Eleven days later, disaster struck again. This time it was Jim Reed, the field manager at Philadelphia, who had been sent to Richmond as Morrissey's replacement. Reed, too, bought the farm on a ferry flight delivering a mail wing to Banks, who was grounded in Washington with mechanical trouble. He took off at 1 a.m. on a flight that should have taken not more than an hour. They found his body and what remained of his plane in the Virginia farm filled the next day. Reed apparently kept descending to keep under the lowering cloud cover, encountered fog, and flew the ship into a small hill. Pitcairn, even at his youthful age, a kind of patriarch who regarded every employee, and his pilots especially, as members of a close-knit family, was stunned. So was Jim Ray, to the extent that he wondered out loud if the treacherous Cam-19, that's the commercial air mail route 19, was it too much for the then state of the art? It was one-legged Harold Elliott who put starch into the backbone, pointing out that with almost brutal frankness that two men had died because they were unprepared. One lost control and the other lost his bearings. We have to face up to it, Elliott said firmly. Our guys have learned, have to learn instrument flying and they'd better be learn it damn fast. But Karen wasted no time. He ordered Agnew Larson to install a second seat with duplicate flight controls into a mail wing, and he called an old friend, Paul Henderson, operations chief of National Air Transport and one of the best flight supervisors in the infant industry. I need to borrow one of your pilots, Pitcairn said, a man who knows night flying and instrument flying, someone who can teach our pilots to stay out of trouble. Henderson answered without hesitation. I'll send you Earl Ward. He's a veteran of Cam 17, 
That was the New York to Chicago airmail route, which we operate entirely at night. How long will you keep them? I don't know. A couple of weeks at least, maybe longer. We need them, Paul. Yeah, I know. Keep them as long as you want. Brotherhood of the Air. It was no empty slogan. Ward worked with Karen's pilots for just two weeks before returning to his duties at National Air Transport, satisfied that the boys had absorbed his sermons. Admittedly, for most of these rugged individualists raised on seat-of-the-pants flying, the gospel according to St. Earl was close to heresy. But the Morrissey and Reed accidents had sobered them considerably, even the carefree Keitel and irrepressible Merrill. There were some grousing that orders to check out on instrument training in the two-seater mail wing was like sending Einstein back to first grade. But on the whole, they accepted the new discipline as professionals. But Karen didn't start flying Cam 10 on December the 1st, 1928, giving Ray plenty of time to line up fresh airborne troops. He needed reinforcements for the Atlanta-Miami Award had doubled Karen's system to more than 1,400 miles. Only Boeing's Chicago-Seattle mail route surpassed it in length. The mail wing fleet was expanded to 16 airplanes, including the new PA-6 Super Mail Wing, which, faster, which was faster and slightly larger than its predecessor. Ray flew one nonstop from Miami to Atlanta in 5 hours and 35 minutes, almost 20 hours faster than the average train. The airline had 91 employees, including 13 pilots, as Pitcairn prepared to take over the new 619-mile leg that added Jacksonville, Tampa, and Miami to the system. The combined New York-Miami route was rechristened CAM-25. Paraphrasing Murphy's Law, if anything can go wrong on an inaugural day, it will, and it did. Furman Stone took off from Canada Field in Atlanta at 6.55 a.m. The post office was allowing Pitcairn to operate day flights over CAM-25 Southern Lake temporarily and encountered such violent storms that he was forced down on an emergency field at Cochrane, Georgia. A farmer gave him a ride into the local post office where a marshal arrested him for carrying a gun. A hasty phone call to Jacksonville, where a crowd of more than a thousand was waiting, got him released and took off again an hour later, this time make it, making it safely to Jacksonville. Don Johnson was, took over Stone's load but ran into brutal headwinds and came down at Barrel Beach where he had to spend several hours finding gas. When he finally reached Miami, it was dark and there were no runway lights. Johnson finally landed safely after a Pitcairn employee, A.K. Hanley, borrowed emergency flares from a nearby railroad yard. He ran down the runway, sticking one in the ground every few feet and lighting it. Johnson's final guidance came from the airport beacon, which someone stopped revolving long enough to focus its beam on the runway edge. Fred Fritz Schmaley had taken the first northbound load from Miami to Jacksonville without incident, and that was the way the operation was to run for several months. By the end of 1928, Ray Squadron had completed 93.1% of its scheduled flights in March, Daytona Beach, Orlando, Tampa, and Macon, Georgia were added to the system. Unbelievably, although Pitcairn had yet to carry a single paying passenger, Quite a few employees, however, were always hooking rides in the mail compartments if there was room. The airline was making money. Ever the one to foster good morale, Pitcairn had given his approval for publication of a small company newspaper, the Newswing, which first appeared in September 1927, several months before airmail service began. 
Once CAM-19 was underway, Newswing was the epitome of optimism as to Pickerian's future and became absolutely ecstatic when CAM-25 was open. Certainly, the nearly 100 employees had no reason to see anything but rainbows over the horizon. By mid-1928, Pitcairn was flying almost a third of the nation's total air mile mileage. But there was a cloud ahead that no one could see, for it was in the mind of Harold Pitcairn. Without confiding in even his closest friends and associates, he had decided the airline to none other than Clement Keyes. of the ancient Mayans, one thing hasn't changed. When Mexican people celebrate, Mexican people dance. You can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. Christmas in the Air by Alexa Conway. One Christmas Eve, we were en route from Miami through Atlanta heading toward Hartford. It was late in the evening, so we were almost empty, everyone else having reached their families. As we started our service, a call button rang. I went to find a young soldier in uniform alone in the window seat toward the rear of the coach cabin. He looked stricken. He was missing his pay envelope. As I began pulling seat cushions, he kept saying, Nobody could have stolen it because it's against U.S. law, and the military would not allow such a theft. I was heartsick to think that this young kid had just been robbed and was too naive to recognize it. He remembered being in the restroom in the Atlanta airport and wondered if he dropped his pay envelope there. By this time, I had thoroughly searched the row behind and in front and under all six seats, in the back seat pockets and in the overhead bin, pulling everything out because he had put a bag up there. No envelope. I excused myself to start work. In the galley, I began to explain the situation. The flight attendants were upset at the very thought. This kid was headed to Hartford to surprise his parents before Christmas, before he shipped out to Vietnam. We were due around midnight, and we were heartsick. I went to the cockpit. I told the front crew about our young soldier, and they pulled out their wallets. I went to my purse and added some money. The flight attendants did likewise. Now I was on a roll. I started in first class cabin. My flight attendants spread out across the plane. We went to every single passenger. We simply explained the situation and the wallets came out. A few minutes later, I counted the money. We had more than $500. We put the money into an eastern envelope and added a short note and sealed it. I took the envelope to the young soldier. 
As I explained to him what everyone had done, he was wide-eyed. He asked if I could get all the names so he could mail refunds. He was a jewel. He opened the envelope and he was agog. I had no idea how much he had lost, but I knew how much all of us had gained. When we landed, a man from first class deplaned but stood in the jetway. As the young soldier got off the airplane, the man stepped out and extended his hand and began talking to the soldier. As we passed them in the terminal, the soldier was waiting with the gentleman. Our passenger was giving the soldier a ride home. Christmas was alive and well in Hartford that night. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. We still get comments of what others think about Eastern Airlines. And we took this memory of Jay Knight off the Facebook page recently. Jay Knight writes, Although I did not work for Eastern, I knew them fairly well. I worked as an agent in a Sato office and was also a manager of that office. I was working in Tucson and was commuting between Tucson and Kansas City. I was on a pass and rode northwest from Tucson to Phoenix, and Eastern had a flight that went Phoenix, Albuquerque, Kansas City. So I was lucky and got the last seat on one of their Airbus planes. And at the last moment, the gate agent came on board and very politely said, Mr. Knight, I'm sorry, but another passenger just showed up. I said, it's okay, I understand. As I was walking towards the front, the captain was standing in the cockpit doorway and asked, who do you work for? I answered, I, I'm not a pilot. And his reply, I didn't ask you that. Then he said, let me see your ID. I showed him my Northwest ID card and he said, where are you going and why? I explained I was working in Tucson temporarily and lived in Kansas City. And my daughter was in the hospital with appendicitis. And he said, you can ride up here with us. The first officer even gave me his meal. What a guy. I got the jump seat in the cockpit and a headset. And he told me, now you have to be very quiet. You cannot talk during the first part and the last part of our flight. Seeing everything from the cockpit was beautiful. And I never forgot those gentlemen. That was so nice and gracious uh, to do that for me. I couldn't write a letter to the company on how great they were. I wasn't even supposed to be up there. So if either of the pilots on that Eastern Airlines flight that day in 1985 see this on Facebook, I owe you such a debt of gratitude. I probably won't ever be able to repay, but I say thank you. Memories of a great airline have reached the end of our broadcast tonight. We hope you enjoyed the stories as told by the Eastern family and read by Linda and Harry Lindquist and me, Neil Holland. 
The stories will continue with next week's broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. If you have memories you would like presented on the air, we hope you will send them to us so they can be read and heard by the Eastern family. You can even record them on your computer's voice recorder and send them to us, and we'll include them on a future show. Send via email to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. It must be in an MP3 or a WAV file to work with our broadcast. These are the formats that most computers use. Also, we hope you will tell your friends about these broadcasts, and if you miss one, you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and select from the episode's archive. Our Eastern theme music tells us it's about time to say goodnight, Eastern family. From Linda, Harry, and me, we'll see you at the gate next week. Good night, Eastern family. <laughs>